0: Everybody, welcome to this edition of the Pac-Man Podcast, Patriotic American Citizen. I'm Ted Flint, and we're going to follow up a little bit on the uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, the verdict, and some of the aftermath, some of the uh, the media twisting and uh, trying to cast Rittenhouse as a uh, white supremacist and a racist, and all this other nonsense. They have their own agenda, the legacy media, and you know, in my opinion, the media is just. Is plum evil, trying to divide Americans against each other, you know, white from black and uh, gay from straight, man and woman, and you name it. it. It's really unbelievable what's going on here. Trying to portray this young man as a, uh, some kind of a uh, racist, is, it's unconscionable. Now, I'm going to read you part of a column written by a gentleman I interviewed a couple of times over the years, and it's maybe four or five years ago I interviewed him when he came out with a, a book about, I think it was about Obama but he's written extensively about Obama. And uh, you name it, he's written about it. Jack Cashel, he's based in California, fine investigative reporter, probably one of the last truly investigative reporters we have in this country. And he's written a great piece for World Net Daily. And he contrasts Rittenhouse and Trayvon Martin and the unequal treatment they received by the media. And I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs here from his latest column. That child had every right to be where he was, said the attorney. That child had every right to be afraid of a strange man following him. Did that child not have the right to defend himself from that strange man? Now, you would think he's talking about Kyle Rittenhouse, but he's talking about Trayvon Martin. Now, I think Rittenhouse had every right to be where he was on that fateful night in Kenosha. He had every right to defend himself from that strange man, men, following him. But he was not the child spoken of in the above paragraph. The attorney in question was John Guy, a Florida state prosecutor. And the child of whom he spoke was 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Now, Trayvon Martin was not a child. Now, we've seen the pictures of him, the smiling 12-year-old, the cherub, young man. How could anybody shoot and kill such a an angelic young man as Trayvon Martin in those pictures? But this guy was... Six feet tall, uh, at least six feet tall, half a foot taller than either Rittenhouse or the man Trayvon attacked and tried to kill in February of 2012. George Zimmerman had not Zimmerman, who was desperate, shot and killed his attacker. Trayvon most surely would have been arrested. This guy was—he was anything but a helpless little child. He was an aspiring MMA fighter, as Cashel writes. He was a uh, a career criminal. He's 17 years of age, but he was—he turned to drugs, he turned to guns, he turned to burglary. And Kyle Rittenhouse took a different path. They both had troubled upbringings. but and, and I think Rittenhouse had the worst of it. As Cashel points out, his father was often drunk, unemployed, abusive. His mother scrambled to survive. She, she and her kids were evicted numerous times. Once she was forced to live in a shelter. By contrast, Trayvon's parents were both well-employed. His childhood pictures, and we saw tons of those, right, showed him skiing and riding horseback and playing football, flying on airplanes. I mean, Rittenhouse didn't have that upbringing. But, you know, he, Martin turned to the gangster life. And he was celebrated, that life celebrated in rap music. Rittenhouse took a different path. He joined the Explorers program at a local police department near his home a program designed to teach self-discipline, responsibility, and other appropriate life lessons. He turned out different than young Trayvon Martin. Martin lived. He died as he lived. He was a violent young man. He died violently. But, you know, the media has portrayed this young Rittenhouse as a vigilante and a white supremacist. There was nothing vigilante-like about his motives for going to Kenosha, August 25th of 2020. People were getting injured he said his job was to protect businesses. I mean, his father lived there. That's why he had his rifle. He had to protect himself. He went there with, he had a medical kit. These idiot prosecutors, and they really dropped, They. they what a horrible case they made for to try to convict this kid. But again, I'm spending too much time on it. But again, back to Cashel's column, because he references a book that I read a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, Uh, written by Jesse Lee Peterson. I've interviewed Jesse Lee maybe, I don't know, a dozen times over the years. He's a black uh, civil rights activist, has his own radio show out in California, out in Los Angeles. And in The Antidote, Jesse writes uh, how Trayvon's death should have been a teachable moment. The media might have said that when a child is shuttled between relatives all of his life, when he is trapped in a series of failing government schools, When he is instructed in ways big and small about the evils of white men, bad things happen. And that's what the media has done. They've tried to portray this case as a case of black against white. It's got nothing to do with race. You know that, I know that, most of the people listening to this podcast know that, but the media is, I don't know what their agenda is. I think they want to destroy this country and they're doing a pretty good job of it. From the Daily Caller, the owner of a store near Detroit is selling ammunition engraved with the words, Let's Go Brandon. And he's not too fond of the coverage he's getting from the media in Detroit. Justin Nazaroff, chief executive at Fenix Ammunition in Novi, Michigan, the subject of a recent article in the Detroit Metro Times, covering his store's inventory. Evidently, the Times doesn't approve of Nazaroff. He's selling previously fired 50 caliber bullet cases with the words, Let's go, Brandon, etched into the metal. He's making a buck. That's what a good capitalist does. So he mocked the media's coverage of his inventory, saying that the bullets were harmless trinkets and dismissed notions that the ammunition's message could be construed to be offensive or threatening. The phrase, let's go, Brandon, by the way, originated in early October during a TV broadcast of a NASCAR race. I didn't see the NASCAR race. I'm not a big fan of NASCAR, but I saw it on YouTube, as you know, millions of other people have by, by now. And the reporter, Kelly Stavast or Stavist, attempted to cover up the crowds chanting, F. Joe Biden. And she claimed they were chanting, let's go, Brandon. Of course, it's, that's the joke. I mean, they were chanting, F. Joe Biden. It's clear as day. And that she claimed they were supporting uh, the driver of the race, the winner of the race, Brandon Brown. But the phrase has now gone viral. You know, there are all kinds of merch you can find. You can get T-shirts with Let's Go, Brandon, uh, coffee mugs, whatever. So anyway, this uh, Nazaroff, uh, I'll give you his quote here. It's, it's, it's priceless. I'm not a humorless loser, and it's not my responsibility to be concerned about the opinions of ignorant people who spend too much time reading the Metro Times cowering in their homes, awaiting their fifth booster shot. This is what he told the Metro Times. He described every Democrat I know. They're all afraid of the COVID. They're obsessed with it. They're, I mean, that's what that's, he described about every liberal that I know. But it's not offensive to criticize a president. Again, I'll finish the quote here from uh, this Nazaroff. A president, especially when that president is an obvious sock puppet for corporate interests, tech monopolies, and the type of leadership that got us into wars in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and countless other places. This is what he told the Daily, News, uh, the Daily Caller News Foundation, adding that the Let's Go branded message could only be considered dangerous by those who put themselves in charge of determining what is and what is not acceptable speech. This is something they can't handle, the media. It's a cognitive dissonance that resonates deep within them. And as a result, they lash out in whatever manner they can. Nazaroff, for a guy who sells ammunition, pretty astute. I read an interesting piece here. I'm not going to read the piece, but it was a column by Derek Hunter in Town Hall Magazine about the post office. Now, every year, the post office loses billions of dollars, five, six billion dollars in the red every year. But Democrats, for some reason, love the post office. Who, do you know who the post office, uh, the postmaster general is? I don't know who he is, but I guess his name is Louis DeJoy. And uh, Hunter says the only reason he knows that is because, uh, for some weird reason, Democrats are fundraising off his name. Now, the first postmaster general was Benjamin Franklin. Everybody knows Benjamin Franklin. But why do Democrats? Why do they love the post office? You know, I read a piece in, uh, it was in this uh, libertarian publication, a Reason magazine. And it stuck with me over the years. (laughs) Whoever wrote the piece said, the the U.S. Post Office, the Postal Service, has become nothing more than an expensive way to send junk mail. And when you think about it, that's what it does. I mean, I get one or two bills in the mail. I get my Verizon bill and National Grid bill in the mail. Everything else I pay online. And I get all this uh, junk mail, basically. You know, these uh, advertisements and... And every year we're told, well, the post office is going to cut back on, uh, on Saturday service to save money, but they never do it. That's all the post office is, an expensive way to send junk mail. But for, for whatever reason, Democrats love it. I think it's because it, uh, it's public. It's government, basically. The post office is government. So the Democrats love government. They are the party of government, the Democratic Party. And that's, uh, that's all on that, I guess. Let's see. Uh, Joe Biden has been one of the the worst president, I think, so far. His first year in office has been abysmal. And his communist cabal, I don't care what you say, they're, these people are communists, flat out. And they want to wipe out the middle class any way they can. I think they're using these vaccine mandates to do it. Another guy I interviewed uh, a number of times, Wayne Allen Root, has written a piece for World Net Daily. And, uh, he says these these mandates, these vaccine mandates, are, and he's right, too, are squ- squarely aimed at working class Americans. If you have a job, you're looking at being threatened with losing your job if you're not vaccinated. And in many cases, your, your income, your pension, gone if you choose to remain unvaccinated. So Biden is threatening to destroy your life, basically, and your way to make a living. He wants to see you homeless. But if you're if you're somebody who's already not working, if you're choosing not to work, you're some lazy bum, you know, home watching Gilligan's Island reruns or watching Dr. Phil as, as as Wayne Allen Root wrote and you're waiting for your EBT card to arrive in the mail, you're fine. You're safe. Biden's not taking away any of your money. Only Americans who work for a living. If you have a job, you're being persecuted. Why not lose your welfare if you're unvaccinated? If you refuse to be vaccinated, why not lose your, your food stamps or your Medicaid or your Obamacare? That's not going to happen. But if you're out trying to make a buck every day, you're working nine to five or whatever, whatever hours you work, you some, a lot of people work two jobs. For years, I worked two jobs to keep food on the table and a roof over my family's head. But I was threatened with, with uh, loss of employment if I didn't get the job at the assembly that's not the reason I got it. I've been vaccinated because my wife is asthmatic and I'm diabetic. And uh, a couple of my children have breathing issues. So I want to keep my family safe. If they force me to get a a booster shot in a few months, I might say to the assembly, well, thanks for the memories. I'll find another way to make a living. I'll dig ditches if I have to. But this is what they're doing. And Root writes in WorldNetDaily, again, go to worldnetdaily.com. There's some good stuff up there, folks. And I know a lot of you read uh, what's what's online, and uh, you have your own sources of information. There's so many sources. I mean, very few people watch television news because of the reasons I mentioned earlier in this podcast. You can't trust them. They have an agenda. They're a bunch of liberal, lying, uh, fanatics. They're they're advocates. They're not reporters. They're advocates for bigger government. Anyway, this is, the, uh, this is the future, I believe, of radio. Very few people, I know people who don't have a radio in their house. Uh, that's not me. I think we have, my wife and I are radio people, so we have radios in nearly every room. But, you know, a lot of people are doing podcasts. A lot of people are getting their news and their entertainment from podcasts. Why not try our podcasts on the BMG Network? Go to the bmgnetwork.com and check out. We have a number of people doing some really fine programming. Adrian Ross. Ken Burns, check them out. They have fine shows. We do columns for you, too. Uh, I do a column once a week called The Pack Perspective on the BMG Network. And if you want to contact me directly, go to Pac-Man or type in pacman at the Network.com. all lowercase. That's all we have time for, folks. Thank you very much for tuning us in. For some reason, my voice has uh, decided to go south. Appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you by, by the end of the week. My wife, or my uh, daughter, my daughter, Madeline, is uh, going to do another podcast for us for the holidays, maybe the day after the holiday. And uh, she's uh, eager to do... She wants to make it a regular thing. She's She does quite well. For, for 18 years old, I mean, she's very poised, very mature, uh, like her mother, and has a great voice and uh, and a fine intellect. So we'll have Madeline on with us. Uh, she wants to do a show by herself. She doesn't want me dragging her down. So we'll we'll have that for you in a few days. Thanks very much, folks, for tuning us in. If the Lord wills it, we will talk to you soon. The Pac-Man Podcast was produced and edited in the BMG studio. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more episodes of the Pac-Man Podcast, go to the bmgnetwork.com or go to the BMG Network on Facebook. And be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Pac-Man Podcast with Ted Flint.